Craig, pleasure to have you here. My pleasure to be here, man. Um, what I wanted to do is really go through your journey from when we first met. I'm going to say it's about 2012. Um, Louis told me there's a strong man coming into town with back problems. Um, you came in, first thing out of your mouth was, have you guys ever been to Steak and Shake? <laughs> and I'm like, no one has told me about the Steak and Shake. <laughs> you, go, you can get meals for under $4. I'm like, this is phenomenal. Um, but I want to backtrack to where, how did you hear of Westside and how did you end up taking that trek down here? Okay, so we'll definitely circle back to Steak and Shake because that was a game changer <laughs> on that trip. Um, so I'd been training uh, for strongman. I was competing as an amateur strongman at that point. And I was doing a very basic linear periodization type approach. I add 15 pounds a week, you know, cutting down the reps, that kind of thing over a 12 week cycle. And I was doing a, a really low rack pull, like mid shin rack pull with let's say 600 pounds, something like that, and blew my SI joint. It felt like it, it my right SI joint felt like it popped and warm liquid was like leaking into my butt. I've, I have no idea what happened, but I was a wreck for days, yeah. like laid up in bed. And naturally, I was pissed. Like, I was really annoyed that this happened. Though so I'm doing what anybody's doing in 2012. I'm Googling things. I'm trying to figure out what happened. And however I came to it, I came to a, a blog from Louis like on the old West Side blog. I was like, he's describing the problems with linear periodization. Like, this sounds like what happened to me. Damn. So, boom, West Side Book of Methods, read it immediately. Like, I'm laying in bed yeah. all day long. So, I read it. Went back and read certain parts of it. Like, this describes everything that went wrong with me. Like, this answers so many things that I'm laying here thinking about right now. So, read that and then went through and there were one or two books that he referenced in there. Um, and I've read everything Louis ever told me to read. So, I don't know which two it was there. Yeah. Um, downloaded both of those, like found free PDF copies that I could, I could read on my laptop laying in bed. Read them both. And then ended up confused about some of the terms and some of the, some of the ways the references applied certain strategies and how Louie implemented it. So at the back of the West Side Book of Methods was the gym phone number like, hey, you got questions, blah, 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 whatever, call the gym. I really called the gym. <laughs> like, he seems like a big deal. Can I really call? So I called and left a message and two or three days later, um, I was driving and Louie called me. And what was that phone call like? It was crazy. So he called. He's like, well, we were talking a bit before we started. You've got a much better inter or imitation of like the Louis Simmons <laughs> phone call start yeah. that I do. Um, so he calls. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is Louis Simmons. And I think I said that to him. I'm like, hello. He's like, this is Louis. I'm like, this is Louis Simmons. He's like, yeah, stupid. Like, I just I just introduced myself. So I'm like, hey, uh, my name's Craig. Uh, kind of like the message I left you. This is what happened to me. This is, you know, I read your book. Then I read these two. And I have a question. Anyway, you read them. I went, yeah. You, went, you read this and this. And, yeah. He goes, why? <laughs> like, well, because you, you, you referenced them. Like, I was reading your book. And after I read that, I thought I should read the things that you, you used as, mm -hmm. as a foundation for it. He's like, huh. And I didn't even get to my question. He's like, how old are you? And I think it was 20, 20 or 21. Um, like I'm 21. Yeah. Like 21. Where are you from? I'm from Canada. Okay. What's your squat? What's your deadlift? What are you training for? What do you weigh? I give him all that info and he goes, and you read both of those. 
like, yeah. He's like, okay, you should come down for a week. When can you come? I'm like, when, when, am, when am I allowed to come? Like to, to Westside we're talking about? Like to Ohio. He's like, yeah, yeah, you should come. I'm like, when? He's like, when can you be here? Uh, I, I, I can be there in a month. And I'm, just, I'm completely rattled on the phone. I have no yeah. idea what I'm agreeing to. And he's like, okay, I'll see you in a month. Click. Like, <laughs> I, I got to go to Ohio. And even that, there's a story behind how you got to Ohio, right? Because can you go, go through that? Yeah, so I, I get off the phone and I'm like floored. And I'm working at a, at a commercial big box gym as a trainer. Um, and I'm broke. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking for the ground beef that's on sale. Like, it's ground beef, frozen broccoli, and white rice is every meal that I eat. Um, and I'm like, okay, I got to go to Ohio. That's a couple hundred bucks in gas. I got to find a hotel. So I'm like Googling discount hotels near the gym address. There's like a red roof for $39 a night or something. $39 a night, seven nights, gas. I got to eat. How am I going to, how am I going to do this? I'm thinking and I'm thinking. And I decided I hadn't seen a lot of articles or things about Westside. People at that point in time who were really into lifting would know the name. Regular people didn't know about it. I wasn't seeing it in Flex Magazine or Muscle Mag or whatever. I'm like, people should want to hear about this. So I drafted this email saying basically, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a really well-spoken good writer, which <laughs> I probably wasn't at the time, but I pitched myself that way. I'm going to Westside Barbell to, to learn from Louis Simmons for a week, and I will write you the best article about it. I will write you the lessons I learned from Westside, and I'll do it for 500 bucks US. And I sent that to every publisher I could think of. And a couple of them said no. Most of them didn't answer. And Muscle Mag sent me back an email saying they're in. They're in for 500 bucks US. I got a deal. And that was it. That's I like, awesome. I financed my, okay, I can afford this. I'll put it on a credit card. When I get back, I'll write the article and I, I can go. So then you hop in your car, drive down here. What is your first day like? What was that first interaction? So I called, uh, I called a couple weeks before, maybe a week before. It was like, okay, are you sure I can still come? Like, I was waiting for Louis to change his mind. So I thought it was insane that he'd invited me at all. He's like, yeah, when are you going to be here? I'm like, I'll be here on this day. He's like, okay, we'll be at Bob Evans at this address. I'm like, okay. And I, I don't even know what Bob Evans is. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't know if it was a restaurant. <laughs> I didn't know if it was a person's house. But he gave me an address for Bob Evans. So I'm yeah. like, that's where I'm going. So I, I get up the first day. I come outside and my car window's been smashed out. My GPS is gone. So one, I'm like, there goes the budget. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm really tighten up here. But two, I don't have the GPS to get there. So I go back in. I get the person at the desk to draw me a map to Bob Evans. Um, and then I tape a garbage bag over my window, hop in the car, drive to Bob Evans, and I walk in and I'm just like spooked. Yeah. Like I'm so nervous. Some of the people I'm seeing, I've seen on the internet, Louis sitting there and everybody's kind of like, hey, and he goes back <laughs> to the conversation they're having. Yeah. So the first day I eat, I say nothing. I say absolutely nothing. I watch Louis take, I forget what vitamins he, he would take every morning. Oh right? yeah. He had his whole, uh, his multivitamin, like every vitamin you could take to stay healthy. And he'd take them all at once. Oh yeah. And one big go. <laughs> He put them all in his mouth. And sometimes he'd have um, a penny or a button in there, and then that would go down to... It was, it was, I've never seen a human being full of so many pills at one time <laughs> yeah, with I the tiniest bit that. of orange juice. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, okay, we're going to the gym. 
I'm like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta pay. Like, why don't, why don't, why aren't we paying? He's like, no, no, I got it. Got it. I'm kind of looking around at everybody else, and they're just kind of like, that's how it goes. I'm like, he bought us all right. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, so I'm, I'm astounded at everything that's happening. Yeah. We cruise over to the gym, um, and AJ Roberts wasn't at breakfast, but he was squatting. Um, so Louis sends me outside to do. I think it was six, but it might have been a thousand trips with the sled. And I come back in and I smoke. He's like, you're a strong man. Was that hard? I'm like, no, it wasn't hard, but it was hard. I was gassed. I'd never done anything like that. But I come in and AJ's squatting. Yeah. He's squatting against bands. And I remember stopping. And I was pretty big. I was six, six, two, two seventy or so when I came. Um, but AJ Roberts was really big. I remember standing there. I'm looking at him from the side. And he's the closest thing I've ever seen to a dinosaur. Like the shape of how big he was. He had these giant legs. His butt was huge. I'm like, this place is crazy. Um, so we got right in the box watch, which obliterated me. It was like, Louis got me into some briefs, yeah. which I'd never tried before. And then we went, um, we went, the squat bar was 65, I think. 50, 65? Mm-hmm. So we went 65, 265, 465, 665. And then people were like, okay, now we can add 45s. Like, <laughs> like this is, I'm going to die. I'm going to die here. But absolutely smoked. But it was more so than the training to me. It was the environment. And that was the conversation with, with Lou. Because yeah. I'd come train with the morning crew. And then as I was leaving, he'd be like, all right, come back at three. Come back at four. Come back at five. Come back whenever. And I'd literally just follow him around. Sometimes I'd hit him with an Indian club because he said his lat was really oh, tight. Oh, yeah. I forgot. But yeah. Yeah. With, I can't do that. I'm going to kill Louis Simmons. Like, I'm two days into being here. I'm going to beat him to death with an Indian club. But I would, and sometimes you'd be like, okay, you're going to do this extra work. Sometimes we'd just talk. Sometimes you'd be like, all right, just follow me. And I'd follow him around while he coached yeah. different lifters or he'd just explain things and put up. I'd have a, I had a spiral notebook that I still have with every question I'd think of between sessions. And at some point, every, every second workout, like every night, I'd pull that out and he'd just, whether it took me five minutes or I think whether it would have taken me five hours, he would answer every single question that I had and every single follow-up question. I'd write down every answer. Like it was the generosity of that experience. It's the, it's the first thing I talk about whenever someone asks me about Louie or Westside. Yeah. It was astounding. Were you taken aback by two things? One were you waiting for this charge to come for training? Like, did you have a, um, like, I remember when I first called, I'm like, wait, there's no charge. I'm like, there can't be, there's always, there's always a charge. That's one. And the second thing is, um, were you surprised at immediately you're immersed in? Like, he treated you as if he knew you. Like, he had that personality. When you came in, you started talking to Lou, like, there was no shying away. Whatever's going to be said is going to be said. And he'll turn to you and ask you, like, what, don't you think so? And you're like, uh, okay, yes, I have to answer <laughs> this. But um, what was that like? The charge, very quickly, I stopped. I stopped waiting for that to happen. Yeah. It, it, everything was so gen- At first, when I got here, I'm like, okay, I got to, whatever this is going to cost me, whatever it's going to take, like, yeah. I'll have to figure it out. Like, I'm here. I'm committed to this. I'll make it work. And then seeing how the breakfast went, seeing how generous he was with his time. See, like, we're talking in the office one day. He's like, 
you want a t-shirt? Do you like this color? <laughs> I'm like, well, I love that color, but you don't have to give me it. Like he's throwing the t-shirt over. Like it, the amount of generosity was like, this is, this is either, he's really slow cooking me. Yeah. And at the end of the day, <laughs> here's your $18,000 bill for breakfast, clothes, coaching. Um, or he's, he's just, he's actually just that person. Yeah. Um, and the immersion, the immersion into the gym, um, it amazed me. It reminded me, it reminded me of, of coming up in fight gyms. Before lifting, combat sports and martial arts were, were all I really did. And I, I think when you're in an environment, almost like the, the movies where the, the student goes up the mountain to find the teacher. Yeah. This is going to sound a little dorky, but I mean it. If you show up with a pure heart, if you show up as the student, like the Bruce Lee empty cup, say, hey, I'm, I'm here to learn. If you're that student and you're, you're in front of an amazing teacher, immersion is what happens. They just start filling the cup. That's, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, and my impression with Louis is, has always been that. If you showed up genuinely interested in learning, genuinely curious, genu genuinely driven, that he would give you the things that he had just for the sake of giving them to someone who, who cared. Mm -hmm. So you came to Westside, immerse yourself, learn from Lou, found your new love for Steak and Shake. What were the biggest things you took from that to generate your article? Like what were the, some of the, cause I think it was 10 things. The 10 things. things. Um, so within those 10 things, like what to you stood out the most? Um, so interestingly enough, I was right that people did care about Westside. The editor from Muscle Mag called me. He's like, this is the best first time article we've ever had in terms of read time on the website, like uh, click through, yeah. whatever it is, um, which floored me because I completely forgot I agreed to do the article <laughs> once I got home. <laughs> He met, he emailed me. He's like, Hey, you know, the deadline's 24 hours away, right? I'm like, Oh my God, I gotta write this article. <laughs> so I pulled up the spiral notebook and started going through it and picked some of the quotes that I had from Louie. Yeah. Um, a few of the, the big ones that, that really, really hit me. Uh, one time we were talking, he's like, I don't focus on other people. I focus on my guys. So everybody else has to focus on my guys. And he was so focused on how do I make these people the best? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried about that person's PR. I'm not worried about our competitor's deadlift record that one of their guys got. I'm worried about making my guys the best they can be. He talked about information overload. He's like, the best thing you could do with a computer is you put it on top of a sled and you drag it around the parking lot. <laughs> um, and my, my absolute favorite, and I've told this story a million times. I tell it to clients. I tell it to friends. I told it to my daughters. Like, in a million different situations, I was deadlifting. And he wanted me to sumo deadlift. And my best sumo deadlift at that point was five, I think it was 585. And I'm working up and I pulled, I pulled a, a small PR. Um, I think I pulled five, 590. I think it would have been 590. So I pulled that and Louis talking to me. He's like, good, put a 45 on each side. I'm like, I'm looking at him like, that's, that's a lot. You know, that was... That was the most I've ever done, right? He's like, no, no, you got it. Put it on. I'm going to tell you the secret to deadlifting. And I got so excited. I'm like, this is what I came for. The, like the best coach in the world is about to give me 
the secret to death. I'm like, this is, this couldn't be better. Like AJ Roberts, who I believe was a current world record holder at that time, or at least was, was very close. <laughs> um, like is in the gym lifting. I'm at West side. It was a sunny day. I'm, I'm going to pull up 90 pound PR and, and Louis Simmons is going to tell me the secret to deadlift. So I put the weights on him. I'm, I'm like in a movie. And he comes over. He's like, okay, the secret to deadlift. If it doesn't come off the floor, you have to pull harder. <laughs> I wanted to leave. I'm, I'm sitting, I'm looking at him and he like slaps my back. He's like, all right, let's see it. I came to Ohio to learn from someone I thought was the best coach on the planet. And, and he just told me to pull harder. If it doesn't lift, you got to try harder. Like, if it, I was distraught. I'm like, cool. I'm going to give this a half effort. I'm going to fail this lift. And then I'm just going to leave. Like, this is, this is what I came for. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm out of money. I'm in Ohio. <laughs> I, I can't believe my hopes were so high. Yeah. So I set up over the bar, start pulling a little bit. Nothing happened. Doesn't break. And then I, I think about it. I'm like, I should pull harder. And I found like a different gear and drilled it drilled it i probably could have pulled 725 like it with how how well it moved and he come over he's like great pull i knew it and that that one lesson with how simple it was and how catastrophic hearing it was to me <laughs> compared to what i thought i was gonna get was the the perfect lesson from being here which he repeated to me other times he's like listen your your push press is fine your close grip bench is fine you don't have to do anything you they need to get stronger you need to hit them harder you need to keep going. You need to do it for longer. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, sometimes there isn't a fix. Sometimes there isn't a hack. Sometimes there isn't a tweak. You have to try harder. And if you're trying as hard as you possibly can, then you probably have to try as hard as you possibly can for a longer period of time. And then you'll get where you want to be. And that, that lesson has impact. It impacted me learning to speak Spanish. It impacted me learning to speak Russian. It's impacted everything I've chosen to do at certain points where I'm like, God damn, like, what do I need to, I probably just need to try harder. And it's always served me. When you're going through technique, we'll just say for deadlift, were you surprised at how quick and simple, just like to pull harder, the advice was on how to deadlift? Because Louis had a unit, like his, he had a five minute rule. If you couldn't teach someone how to squat, bench, or deadlift in less than five minutes, you're doing something wrong. And he wanted you on the bar as fast as possible because that's how you learn. When you came in waiting for this, just say, before you got the pull harder, when he's teaching you to get set up, were you waiting for like, okay, here's A, B, C, D? Were you waiting for something like that to be taught? Or did you have a pretty good idea that it wasn't going to be the normal, um, I guess, rigmarole that, someone trying to oversell here's how you do it that's a funny question because since that time and since the influence of louis on my coaching i've simplified things so much more in terms of how i operate that it seems much more normal now but coming in i expected it to be way more technical way more complicated and seeing how he how he operated i think we admire or can be persuaded by big, fluffy, 
complicated ideas, instruction, mm-hmm. coaching, whatever. The best coaches in the world are always are always hyper simple, hyper clear. They're focused on the 80-20 type of focus in terms of getting you moving and then making very small, concise, but powerful tweaks from there. So I was surprised. Yeah. It was, everything was simple. But I think it's, isn't it an Albert Einstein quote? If you couldn't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't know it. If you can't get somebody to squat in five minutes, you might not know how to coach somebody to squat. Yeah. Which is a philosophy I only, that only seems normal to me now. Yeah. Because of so much of the influence that experience and his coaching had on me. So your journey after your visit to Westside, can we, can we go through that? Because uh, it has more meanders than a river <laughs> that um, it's pretty interesting. So you, get, you write your article, goes to Muslim Mag, what's next for Craig? So I get back, I'm training at a, a big box gym and I, I didn't particularly enjoy training at a big box gym, which I assume most good coaches do not. But it was almost intolerable after being here. Um, I hated everything about it. I hated the attitudes of the management. I hated some of the structures. I hated so much of it. So I had these constant arguments with my manager. And I think the only reason they didn't fire me is because I sold more training than anyone else. Like, I was very busy as a coach. Yeah. Um, but I hated it. So I was talking to a couple clients that I, I trained privately. And I was like, I think I'm going to quit and just do like private security stuff and I'll just lift on my own. They're like, quit coaching. Like you can't quit coaching. So we ended up opening a small private gym. They were the backers, um, had a small private gym for a year. The partnership broke up and then opened my own, uh, my own small private place. And I want to say modeled after Westside. And I, it would be disrespectful of me to assert that it was like Westside. Yeah. But in, it was influenced. Ins- influenced and heavily inspired in terms yep. of my taste and what I liked. Um, and I actually named it after my dog, Lily. So it was called Lil's yeah. Gym. Um, she was there every day. She was the logo, which also wasn't meant to copy Westside. Like I named yeah. it after her and made her the logo because she was there every day. Um, and, and slowly started training. Well, at first I didn't train anybody. Like I, <laughs> I sat in an empty warehouse by myself for hours. <laughs> And then it, one of the first high-level athletes I started training was a triple jumper named Ken and Chad. Yeah. Yeah. So Ken came down to learn from Louis, Right. And, you know, he's telling Louis about the coaches he's had. And the advice Louis gave him, if you can't find a good coach, you'd be better off not training at all, which was crazy. And then one day, I don't know if Kenan was here or if he was talking to Louis on the phone. And Louis's like, listen, you're in Canada, right? Kenan's like, yeah. And Louis goes, do you, you have a, you've heard of a place called Waterloo? Ken's like, yeah, I, I live there. Louis's like, oh, okay, call this guy. Go talk to Craig. And that was the first like high level athlete that I really started, yeah. started working with because Louis referred him. Wow. Which, like, yeah, was incredible and quite nerve wracking. Like, I remember calling Louis three or four times. <laughs> like, my plan is to do this, this, and this, like this. What do you think? He'd be like, okay, I like this and this. I would do this like this and gave me a lot of help there. But that, from there, I started training more and more athletes, ended up training a lot of really incredible professional athletes, often in combat sports, but a few other sports as well. And that's, like you said, this meanders a lot. I don't know what you want me to focus on. I I want to go through it to end up to where we're at now. So 
during the first part of having my gym, I was competing as a professional strongman. I did the Arnold Amateurs um, and then competed professionally around Canada. And near the end of my strongman career, I was really starting to look at what I was doing. I had an opportunity to go to New Mexico and do the strength coaching at Jackson Wink MMA. And I ended up writing a book with their head striking coach, Brandon Gibson. But as I was looking at that, I'm like, okay, do I want to be a coach or do I want to be a professional strongman? And I can be both, but where is my emphasis mm-hmm. going to be? And that was right around the time Mike Jenkins, the world's strongest mm-hmm. man competitor, died. And he was somebody I was looking at like, I got to be like Mike Jenkins. And then at 30 or 31, he's dead. And I was talking with Kyle Kokliev. Um, we were like Facebook messaging. And he's like, if, if things keep going the way it's going in the sport, I think there's going to be a lot more of this. Ah, damn. Like I, the only real family I had at the time was my dog, Lily. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to die and leave Lil. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I, I think I need to, to focus on coaching. So quit competing in strongman. Um, and was probably depressed for about two years. I hated being around weights. Like it, I, I had no direction with my own training and I continued coaching people cause that's what I did for a living. Yeah. But despised being in the gym. Um, decided I would do something completely different. So I went from 320 down to 220, ran a marathon, had some amateur boxing fights, joined the military for two years, um, all in an attempt to see like, am I really as disciplined as I like to believe? Or do I seem disciplined because I work for myself, I coach myself, I only do things I want to do. Mm-hmm. So did all of those things and then continued coaching, obviously. And then at one point, it was kind of like, I kind of miss being a little bit jacked. Like, <laughs> I don't need to be strong man big. Yeah. I kind of like being jacked. I, I want to lift heavier again. Like, I, I miss it. Like, there's something to that that it isn't here anymore. So I started getting a little more jacked, um, a little bit stronger again, which has been really, really fun. Um, and then continued, continued coaching, which has provided me with an unbelievable life and, yeah. and unbelievable opportunities. And obviously we can get into more of the details, but the one thing I, I tell everyone is I've, I've built everything off of the influence that Louie had on me that first visit. I get the amount he gave to me. And the last time I spoke to him, I said that. Like the, the amount you've given me personally, professionally, and philosophically has given me almost everything else. It's, it's an unpayable debt. Well, I think you understand, too, the best way to repay as best you can is by giving back an education. From your time and then going through your journey, what were some of the gaps or misunderstandings that you saw people had of Westside, of Lou, of how um, his enhancement of the system was? That is a big question because the my least favorite thing and it's almost cliche now are the posts online where people are like tried conjugate didn't work like tried conjugate didn't work this is like me going to a shooting range missing the target being like try to glock they don't work <laughs> like well there <laughs> maybe that particular glock didn't work perhaps or maybe you didn't aim it correct like so the biggest misunderstandings i think i think there are 
there are two that come to mind immediately. The first one is that people will have a snapshot of something that was happening at Westside or at a, at a single moment or a single workout at Westside. And they'll go, oh, okay, that's, that's conjugate. That's the Westside system. You do this workout exactly like this. So now every Tuesday is this, where it's a single, it's a single moment in a stream that is rolling. Or it's, it's me watching a Mayweather fight and it, 43 seconds to go in the first round, he lands a double jab and a left hook to the body. I go, okay. The key to success in boxing is that with 43 seconds to go in the first round, I throw a double jab and a left hook to the body. And then I go out and I go to throw that at the complete wrong time. <laughs> and I get countered and knocked out. I'm like, well, Mayweather doesn't know anything about boxing. The Mayweather boxing doesn't work. So I think not understanding that West Side is a framework. Conjugate is a framework where different variables are plugged in. And that almost leads into number two, which is, I think, not understanding that the variables are specific. The, the greatest thing, I think, that comes out of the conjugate methodology, Louis' methodology, both for training and for life, is a clear focus on the weakest link. My accessory work is right for me. Mm-hmm. My main lift choices are right for me. When I coached, Denton Daly, who at one point while I coached him was ranked the number one cruiserweight boxer on the planet. He was ranked number one. And right now I'm coaching Maxime Boudreau or Sam Beliveau, um, incredible strength athletes who, who I think have the potential to be the world's strongest man and woman yeah. as a couple, which is bananas. Their, their exercise selection, their accessory selection, everything about their programs is completely different from Denton's. Because they have completely different weak links and completely different focuses. But that's the same even if you have two power lifters. Even if you have two people in the same sport. Where their weak links are, where, they, where their best low-hanging fruit is, is completely different. And that evolves over time. As one thing gets stronger, as one thing improves, a different weak link appears. Mm-hmm. And the idea that they're... The idea that a system essentially based on the idea of get strong, get explosive, get conditioned, get muscular, and focus heavily on the things that are your greatest weak points can't or doesn't work is insane. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So then the question is application. If you can hit a target at 100 feet with your Glock and you hand it to me and I can't hit it with 100 feet, I'm not applying it correctly. There's something off in terms of how I'm approaching the task. There's nothing wrong with the target or the gun or the lane we're shooting in. And that's what I see very, very often is that for conjugate to work, you have to think. Like you have to think and you have to analyze and you have to think about what the results are that you've seen and find the next correct step from there. And if you're not willing to do that, then you should go to a different program. Mm-hmm. Like that, that work. That thought is mandatory. The critical thinking element. Where do you see that getting misinterpreted? So if someone comes in and like, okay, I'm smart enough. I can think about this. Where do they, where do you see people who start this fall short? So if people are intelligent and are attempting to think about it, I think where they get they get thrown off track is by looking for the answer. 
So there isn't a the answer. What's the answer right now? Mm-hmm. If I always give people like the example of a bench press because it's very simple and I, I make it even more simple. So if my shoulders can bench 300 and my triceps can bench 315 and my lats can support 300, but my pecs can only handle 250, I will only bench 250. Now, if I get my pecs up to 315 in terms of their, their potential for strength, now my shoulders are the limiting factor at 300. If I get them up to 320, now my triceps are the weak link at 315. So it rotates. It's mm-hmm. going to move through. And there's a bunch of other factors. I understand that's overly simplistic. But it's understanding that the answer today is only the answer for today. What's the Louis quote? As soon as your body has all the answers, you need to change all the questions. And I think that applies in a variety of areas. But dumb people just want to be given the answer. Intelligent people want to find the answer. And really, really smart people understand there are multiple answers depending on when the question is being asked, exactly how it's being asked, and how things have changed since then. Those smart people get caught in the, okay, what is the answer? How do I find the answer? No the. Mm-hmm. So to where, I'm not going to push back, but when we look at people who are, we'll just say dumb, there's people there who don't even know where to start. And we just talked about it before we got here is we have so many influencers. We've got so many people online. So to start in this direction is a lot simpler. And it's to, you nearly have to go through your own process, just like you did to come to Westside, right? You have to go through, I got to figure out how to get money, how to get here. And then your education like goes on. So nearly these people, you have to go through a period of where you just don't know and you think it's right. And then you're choosing to make an uneducated decision, right? That's the, that's the thing we're kind of seeing is like, okay, how do we get the information out to those who want it? And if you want to reject it, that's fine. But now it's kind of getting a little bit more murky in that these people who are, I mean, we got more and more people training at home. That basically we want to make them a self-strength coach, right? You want to be able to train yourself, um, trying to get them in like, okay, here's a, an easy way to digest the conjugate method. And then going back into the sticking points that, um, you said is like, it's trying to figure out, okay, how do we make you educated? And if you choose not to be educated, that's on you. You go down that road of eventually you're going to adapt, accommodate and go backwards. And then you're going to get injured and then all roads come back to us because that's how it was for years. Everyone gets screwed up. They come back here. I wish I knew this. Um, So what would be three good tips that you would give people who wanted to really understand the thinking behind the conjugate method? No pressure. That's a big question. So we're talking somebody who is... Let's say someone a year in. They, they've, they've dabbled in. They're trying to figure it out. They really want to take a step forward of like, I want to start this system. I want it to work. I want to get results. I'm, they're serious about their strength training. Okay. The number one thing I would say, and in my own personal experience, this has been monumental. Read everything. And probably read it twice. Because certain things... I don't know how many people have attempted to read the book of methods. Um, it's not 
an easy read all the time. Like it's not a page turner front to back. No. Where you sit there and go, wow, that was that was wonderful. Like you're gonna have to read it a few times and you're gonna have to make at points your best interpretation of what's happening. So I would do that, but I would read everything, especially with the amount that you guys put out. There is so much gold there. And it's it's almost hidden because it's free. It's simple. There's not a flashy influencer like trying to pimp the information to you. It's like, here it is. Read absolutely everything. After that, I would stop reading everything. Get Read as much as you can. Make the best plan that you possibly can. Give yourself a week. Read everything on the West Side blog even. Read everything you need to set up a program. Then stop reading anything for a month and test it. Test your ideas. Do not consider anything else until you start testing it and see what happens. And then third, I would take that and I would either be looking for a coach, an advisor, new blogs that you guys put out. When you do a Facebook Q&A or an Instagram Q&A, I would be sending it in there and I would start trying to modify from there with help. So I would go tons of help, read everything, then zero help and test, and then specific help on the things that you're noticing. No hypotheticals. None. Um, that would be how I would approach it. And I guess, fittingly, that's almost how the system worked for me. Mm-hmm. I read everything, came here, and just shut up and did everything I was told. I wrote down everything I was told. I asked every question I could think of. I argued with nothing. Like, And I obviously, I'm not going to sit here and argue with Louie. But I didn't even argue with it in my brain. Yeah. But this is my question. This is the answer. And if I had another question, I would ask that. But it was just gather as much information as possible. Then I went and tried everything I was told as best I could apply it. And then I had specific questions based on specific results. Because I think it's very easy for people to get caught up in hypothetical questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the conjugate, I understand it. I'm going to implement it like this. You know, yeah. They go, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? Well, I heard this person kind of does it this way. Forget all of that. For a month, shut yourself out, test everything. And then you'll either know if it's working or if it's not working, or you'll know what questions you really need answered. When along your journey of training yourself, then training, well, let's even get to that. How did you find that transition from you're training yourself to be a professional athlete, now you're working with athletes, then transitioning into to where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your training kind of goes, I'm training to be healthy, to do your own internal goals, but the objective is now to make these athletes better. How was that transition for you in uh, adapting and implementing a system with athletes? Rough. There is a certain amount of benefit of being in it that I think is inescapable. When I wasn't training that hard, when it was, okay, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds and I'm going to run a marathon and whatever, like that, that still work, but you don't, you're not as connected to what you're doing. And it's so much harder to have a good idea about a workout when you're not doing something like it, testing new strategies, testing rep schemes, testing band tensions, testing rest periods, testing different movements combined with other movements, like different accessory movements with heavy, whatever, testing everything. 
it's very hard to do that exclusively looking at someone else, at least for me. Mm -hmm. There's a significant amount of being in it that I need to have to feel engaged in the entire process and to feel like I understand it. Like I've been in a lot of fights. Um, I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy, primarily organized fights. But it's been a while since I've been in one. And my, my visceral understanding of what it's like is cloudy now. I'm removed from mm -hmm. it. Like it's, it's harder for me to understand, all right, okay, slip the jab this way, come with a hook. That It's harder for me to put together. Training, same thing. I think not being in it 100% hurt me as a coach at least to a degree. And I had enough experience, enough knowledge, and knew enough things that I could still program well. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very hard to advance when you're not in it. Yeah. So in terms of your advancement, and I think this is another thing people get wrong in that we never, there's a few things. One, a lot of people write bad about Westside. Westside has never wrote once bad about anyone because our biggest competition is internal. Second, we never tell people don't go learn somewhere else. So on your journey, did you start going, oh, this is a very interesting maybe a system of training or exercise or sequence. Let me try plug this in and figure out where that goes in. Did you go through an element of that looking broad to narrow in your, um, I guess, your methods of coaching? I still do. Um, I was just in Texas with Josh Bryant, who I think is, I think with Louis having passed, if somebody were to ask me who is the number one powerlifting coach on the planet, it'd be hard for me not to, not to look at a guy like Josh. Mm -hmm. I have immense personal and professional respect for him. But Josh, Josh and Louie share mm -hmm. more than, than they differ. Mm -hmm. But there are absolutely ideas where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try that. Or I see things that are successful for a particular athlete, even if I believe they might be genetically an outlier. I'm like, cool, I've noticed that with this guy, this, with this guy, what are the principles? What are the commonalities here? How can I draw a piece of that even yeah. into what I'm doing? Um, like Konstantin Konstantov, the deadlifter. Um, I think Konstantin or KK is a freak or was a freak. Yeah. But I think there are principles between certain KK ideas and certain things that I've seen Josh talk about, certain things that I've heard Louis talk about, certain things that I've experienced. And I'm always looking for the common principle underneath it that I can then pull up and utilize for me specifically. Um, I think that's the magic of multiple mentors. And sure, you might hit on a method where you're like, wow, this crazy accessory work that Doug Young did in the 70s really works great. Mm -hmm. But I think it's far more often, if you can find the principle, you can make it work for you or someone else. Like when I... I went and lived in Alaska with Bill Kazmaier for a week. And then he actually came to Canada and lived with me for a week, which was a mind-blowing experience. Like, mm -hmm. as you grow up getting into strength sports, it's yeah. Kaz. Yeah. Like, it's not Bill Kazmaier. It's, it's Kaz. Kaz. Yeah. And it's funny because they were doing exactly what Kaz instructed me to do. Didn't work great for me. Like, blew me apart. Uh, my recovery capacity was not sufficient for the 
the level of work he had me doing at certain points. However, when I would look at some of his ideas or when we talk about it, and I'd play back conversations I'd had with Josh Bryant, conversations I'd had with Louis, things that I'd read in any of the books Louis gave me, like when I left the first week, yeah. I think he gave me five or six books to read, which I still have and still reference. But finding the principles between all of these people who have, who have achieved world-class results, that's the magic. And I'm going, okay, how do, I, how do I implement something like this? And then, similar to my advice for starting Conjugate, get the best information possible, then stop thinking and try it. Don't screw with it while you're trying it the first time. Just try it. And then see what happens. Start to ask better questions. I mean, that's a super simple method to follow. I think that's like, it's a really good, like, um, I guess you've distilled it down to, I think, very digestible chunks for people to start. Uh, and another thing too, you hit on, you referred it to you. And that's another thing. When you came to Westside, you didn't go, I'm going to replicate Westside Barbell verbatim over here. Or um, we'll get is like, well, I've got band tension and it's actually 27%. Is that okay? Like everything is a rule of thumb. Everything is open for interpretation. And how can you go train MMA athletes, boxers, strength athletes, uh, was he, a, was, was Keenan triple jumper or tri triple jump triple ju originally? So yeah. you got a triple jumper off the same foundation. You're like, it's okay. So we both have the same foundations, different interpretations, how we do it, but yet injury rates are low. Uh, success is high. And why is that? Because we figured out we can't replicate this one for one, but we know enough to go, okay. Here's how this critical thinking, here's how this process works for athletes. Absolutely. And if, and if it's, it's wild to me, because when you say it like that, it's so simple, it's so concise, and it makes so much sense. But people get caught in trying to do that, I think sometimes because it's so simple that it, it almost doesn't seem worthwhile. Yep. But if you were to relate it to something else in life, which I think is a very helpful way to understand things, be so right now, I can speak three languages fairly well. My English is fine, and then I speak Spanish <laughs> and Russian. It was easier to me to learn Russian after having learned Spanish. And that's not because there's much carryover from Spanish vocabulary or Spanish grammar into Russian, but I had a system for applying learning languages. I understood the structure of, okay, what do I need? I need to be able to talk, like I need to be able to communicate to people or identify people, me, you, him, her. Yeah. I need some simple verbs, typically in the past tense, because that's how we talk about things. Like we're not sitting here talking about, I am sitting. Yeah. Like, yeah, I came here last year. I did this. And then I need some very simple describing words. And now that I have that system, learning another language is easier. Westside is the exact same. A triple jumper might be Spanish and a strong man might be Russian and I don't know, a power lifter might be Swahili. But if you go, okay, these are the things we need to focus on. And I've also learned to identify, oh, these are the weak links. Past tense is my weak link. Once that improves, oh, now this grammatical structure is my weak link. And identifying the biggest weak link 
that's holding me back from being conversational allows me to move the language forward faster. Training is the exact same. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest weak link that's stopping me from increasing my performance? Okay, cool. I have a system for finding that, for building it, for measuring it, and then repeating that process over and over again. You can apply it across any sport that you want, but it's never a one-for-one like you just said. Yeah. It's a paint-by-numbers, maybe, but the colors change. Otherwise, your picture is going to look ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) As a coach, did you ever experience the following? You start off with a level of individualization to eradicate these weaknesses, and you're working with a group setting. Let's take MMA athletes we're familiar with working with, and usually no one's alike. They have all a plethora of different things to work on. Then you get everyone up, right? Then there's this moment in time where everyone is training and the training looks so similar because you've eradicated most weaknesses. Now everyone is kind of, the goal is towards the, uh, just a similar development. Now you have this training environment. You have people going, oh, we're doing the same max effort today. We got that, that culture going, that back and forth. Then a visitor comes in. And they're like, oh, these guys are all doing the same thing. So it must be the same kind of circling back what we started with. I saw that happen. I didn't understand what was happening at Westside in that a lot of people would be in groups. They would go to the same accessories. I'm like, well, how's that individualization to where I didn't know what they're doing outside of the gym? And you said that snapshot. But when you were working with your athletes, did you encounter to where you have a group and now we've actually developed what was a weakness into a strength and everyone is basically all around strong that you can implement a similar system for a period of time not forever but for a period of time did you experience that and if so um did that affect the culture within the training group yes yes to both yes i've experienced that and yes i think it affected the culture um Ironically, I think for people who are new, it's a negative. And for people who are, who are in it and have been in it, it's a major positive. Mm-hmm. I think people come in and they go, this is the same thing. Not realizing that the amount of progress that has to take place and the amount of individualization that has to take place to get people to be roughly similar yeah. is massive. But I think in terms of doing that, I think it's interesting. I think there's two things. I think one, even if there was say like a 5% variance plus or minus on how good the same program is for that group altogether at the same period in time, the culture and intensity and mindset benefit far outweighs a 5% plus or minus massively. I would say that for sure. And the second thing I would say is I think as people get more and more advanced, Similar to somebody doing a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate, it's very easy to tell the difference between focuses and bachelor programs. It's pretty easy to tell the Mm -hmm. difference between focuses and master's programs. Doctorates, if you've got somebody who starts in chemistry and their bachelor's, oh, I'm organic chemistry, I'm some other type of chemistry on this. (laughs) I'm going to lose this here. (laughs) I'm going to stay tight. Yeah. Masters, the differences are a little bit smaller to see. In a doctorate, unless you're somebody experienced in the field, telling the difference between different doctorate programs or different thesis focuses for doctors 
within the same umbrella is very difficult. Yeah. Like if somebody goes, I've got a doctorate in chemistry, and they go, I have a doctorate in chemistry too. I'm assuming they have very different thesis ideas and focuses, but I'm not going to understand the goddamn difference. I think it's the same here. As athletes get more and more advanced, the differences within that group become very hard to see for someone who isn't experienced with it. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And that's just a nice segue into in about 2016 is when John Quint um, brought in an internal aspect. Like, we're very good at the external, like developing different types of special strengths, etc. But we were doing some stuff for joint training in terms of like the bands, ligament tendon development, but never for joint architecture. And that was the game changer. It was the stuff that people were doing at home that no one was looking at because it wasn't in the gym. And then they would come in and you'd know who was doing and who wasn't because even though they're similar in nature to what they're doing, I'm like, oh my God, the position they're getting is way better. How they're pulling the sled is now way better. They're becoming more efficient and they're doing more, like been able, the fact that you can see the same things that uh, we saw, like this system is phenomenal. I realized like I'm learning directly from the fire hose that is Lou. Never in a million years can that be replicated. But you're like, okay, how can we add our, how can we add to this? The system like theoretically is sound because it's adaptable to whatever. What's missing at the start, what's missing at the end. And you touched on it was, okay, how do we ask the right questions? And as strength coaches, like people try to corral us into the strength coach politics of I'm this camp, I'm that camp, I'm this. This is how you warm up. This is how, I mean, we've seen so many people do different things and are really successful. Why? Because they're very talented. Um, but if you eliminate all that, you're like, really, you want to get down to how the hell do I get rid of weakness? How can I get smart enough to ask the right questions? Because a lot of times coaches will ask the wrong questions, but get the right answers. And they're like, well, we did the right things. Like, no, 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 you asked the wrong questions. Correct. You've got the right answers for those questions, but that doesn't mean you're solving the problem. No, and the, the real risk there is that if you're, if you're lucky enough to have that happen as a coach or as an athlete, the better you get, the higher stakes you're playing at. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I started as a coach, if I hurt a client, which is always my number one fear. That's where my head was going, yeah. Always my number one fear. But if I'm just starting out, I blow somebody out with some stupid idea I had, my career will likely survive. If two months from now, you know, Maxime Boudreau, who I'm training, goes on his Instagram and is like, my coach made me do this, and I'm at a world's strongest man for the next two years with this injury. Like, I'm going to have to change my name if I still want to be a coach with an athlete. If you go into a fight unprepared and it's your first amateur boxing match, maybe you'll get embarrassed, but you'll be fine. You go in to fight Deontay Wilder unprepared, you might die. Yeah. Like the stakes get higher. And the risk there is that if you don't figure out how to ask the right questions, if you don't build, build an understanding and almost an internal system for getting to the right questions, and you're lucky enough to get the right answers, when you eventually get the wrong answer because you don't have that luck, you'll be playing with, with much bigger stakes. If I invest in crypto 
and I go from 10,000 bucks to a million bucks to 10 million bucks on complete lucky guesses. Where I've asked the wrong question, but I've, started, I've gotten the right answer. But I think I'm a genius. When I invest my $100 million and I invest it wrong and I don't have that luck, now I'm not out a thousand. I'm out my million or a hundred million or whatever. So it's learning to ask the right questions is incredibly important. And I think being around Louis, being around the system, the mix of science and art that I feel the West Side system is, when you study it and when you're around it, I feel like it teaches you how to take a scientific but creative approach. And that's how you get good questions to get answers you haven't had before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is so imperative and so underrated. Like, I don't think anyone's telling people, hey, you want to be a great lifter, you want to be a great coach, learn to ask really good questions that are concise and important and useful. That's not cool. That's yeah. not a neat thing to say. But that will serve your career and the athletes you coach in your own development better than any other information. I'd rather teach somebody how to do that than give them any helpful answers because they can get all of those answers and more Mm -hmm. if they learn how to ask questions properly. Do you try and instill that on your athletes to your athletes become better coaches than you? Depending on who they are. If I'm coaching an athlete who genuinely, like, they don't care. Like, I just want to do the work to get this result so then I can retire. Cool. Like, I'm not going to... We can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> like, no pressure. But when I, have, when I have other coaches that I'm mentoring, when I have athletes that I think want to move in that direction, even with my daughters just in life, and I have no, no desire for them to become strength coaches, and they don't seem that, <laughs> that pumped about that idea. The more you can teach people to do that, the better. So when somebody's asking me a question, even if I understand what they're asking, I'll dig into the details with them to make them understand it. Okay, what do you mean when you say that word? Why are you asking it like that? What do you want to get out of that? What is the goal from here? Like the the more you drill that down, and it's probably exhausting for people sometimes, Yeah. but the more you drill that down, they start to clarify their own thought process to get to the question they thought they originally had. And sometimes it changes the question, but even if it doesn't, that level of concise thinking is how I try to train them towards that. Do you take athletic loss personally? When it happens to me or when it happens to a client? Client. Like to whatever internally, but if you work with a fighter, they go out, and they take, they get beat. Do you take that part, like to where obviously you feel bad, but do you, do you criticize like, well, is this something we did? Have you kind of crossed that hurdle yet or does that still hit you? It still hits me. Um, I'm better than I was at the beginning. In the beginning, it was just like, I, I <laughs> yeah. take that feeling and just own it. And what I've, what I've started to do as I've matured as a coach is I never ignore it. I always go, Let's pretend I'm correct and this is my fault. How was it my fault? And if I can find an answer, then I fix it. And if I can't find an answer, then I accept that it wasn't. Yeah. But I always use that. I always use that to go, okay, is, the, is there something I can learn from this? 
even if I'm only improving things 1%, even if it really was that their coach missed the week of sparring when they were supposed to fly this guy in to help them prep for the fight, he screwed up the flights, we never got the sparring, blah, blah, blah. Fine. That's not useful to me. Yeah. So I always go, okay, I'm going to assume this result is my fault, and I'm going to look for a reason that's true. And if I can't find it, because I find that's also a very easy way to think about things. Yeah. If you go, I wonder if this is true, and, and you start kind of thinking around, your brain isn't very helpful. At least mine isn't. But if I go, this is true, tell me why. Like, you almost look at how people, people I think, misuse the internet to, to reinforce their beliefs. Our brain likes that. Mm -hmm. Our brain loves reinforcing our beliefs. So I'll tell it, we believe that this is my fault. Find evidence. And it allows me sometimes to go, okay, I don't think this is a big factor necessarily, but I do think this is something I can improve. Noted. And there are times I go through it and I go, Denton, Denton Daly. Uh, he fought for a world title and lost. And I did this exact process. Because I, Denton was at my wedding. Um, I was at his. I, I love his mom. Like, he's an amazing guy. I care about him. And he, he went out for a world title attempt and lost. And it hurt personally. Mm -hmm. And then I went home and went, this is 100% my fault. Now let's find evidence. And I went through every workout, every bit of progress, every metric I tracked. And at the end of it, I went, this prep was perfect. Like from a strength and conditioning perspective, every single thing I care about or could care about has improved dramatically. Mm -hmm. This is the healthiest he's been on the metrics that I look at. This is the most muscular, lean, and fit he's been. His run times are the best. His interval times are the best. His strength on these 20 movements is the best it's ever been. This is the best Denton I could have helped create. And then I can rest easy. But I, I need to have that level of assurance to be okay internally. Well, I mean, <clears throat> Lou had a thing where he said, um, show me what you did. And it's held true to everyone that I chat with or works with athletes. I'm like, keep objective data. Because at any time, any day, they can go, well, uh, what have you done for me? Or what have you done for my athlete? And if you don't have that objective data, where Louis was unique, is it was in his head like that, boom. He was he an would, encyclopedia. Oh, I've never seen yeah. a memory like that. And you forget your name, but you come in, you, and then you're like, oh, I think my record's 600. Like, no, 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 it's 585. Like he would remember, uh, and it would just be so normal for him because he had all the stats in his brain. But I like figured the same thing you did from listening to that like kind of guiding principle from Lou is that I've never not had objective data. I've never not went back through like, oh, okay, I haven't missed a beat here. I've ensured there's a critical thinking process of, hey, we have these steps in place. I've asked the right questions. I've double checked. I've asked the right questions to gone through. But um, I think it's, it is funny. I don't think enough of us talk about the personal feeling we get when you work, especially with combat athletes. It's like when they go out, because you're so invested in them as a person and it's not the success of, of winning and accomplishing and being like, oh, look at me. I trained this person. Is you're so invested as, into them as a person because you see them um, you see their families, you see that, like, hey, there's life outside of this. So, like, like to me, I always hope they go in five seconds, knockout, boom, congratulations, like, perfect. And, like, you know, to a fighter, like, that's the worst thing because you've built up all this camp and you have to unleash that rage. But it was one thing that uh, I, I tried to research. I'm like, there's nothing, 
they're really to help or to guide coaches of like, hey, don't take this personally. And if you do, make sure you have these processes in place. Well, I think there's there's two things with that. Because you're right, I've never heard anyone else talk about this. And I've talked to people and like, you know, how is it if you, you watch somebody you coach compete? I'm like, I hate it. I hate it. There's been times I've been at the arena, like I've, I've left ringside and gone to throw up. Like I hate, and I've, I've fought and I feel fine about fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I watch an athlete I'm coaching fight. I'm a wreck. And I think, I think it's a hard thing for strength coaches because one, one, like you said, you care about this person. Like you develop a genuine relationship with them. But two, we're not in the driver's seat. We can do as much as we can do, but we're not even the main coach with a fighter. Mm-hmm. It's, and the element of randomness in fighting is crazy. Like this is like, you know, I coach powerlifters, but we're in this special federation where randomly people will blow like an air horn or shoot them with paintballs while they're squatting. You're like, <laughs> uh, you can be as prepared as you want, but there's going to be a lucky <laughs> shot that throws you off balance and that yeah. is what it is. And that's fighting. Like there is, you can be as well-trained, as well-prepared as you can have the best game plan in the world. Sometimes things just happen. Like it, you and the other guy both go in for a body shot. You clash heads. Your fighter's a little bit dizzy and he gets knocked out the next round. Like it, it's not supposed to happen, but it can. Yeah. But it's hard, I think, for strength coaches to be able to look at it and go, I can't control this. Like I I can't influence this 100%. I can influence it 100% the other way. I could hurt them and they could pull out of the fight. Yeah. I can make them lose. I can't make them win. Yeah. It's not a fair relationship. At all. Like, we're in a bad spot as strength coaches. It's, one, we're easy to blame. Two, a lot of coaches, especially old school coaches, don't appreciate what we're doing at all, even if you keep the metrics. Yeah. But that's also part of the reason I keep them. To at least show that, like, there's been times I've graphed it. And printed it for old school coaches. I'm like, look, these are his run times. These are his lap times doing intervals. These are his reps on this, this, and this. This is how fast he can flip a a 500-pound tire 100 yards. These are all his lifts. Look. So at least there's something. We're easy to blame. We're not in a lot of control. We don't have a ton of upside. We've got a massive amount of downside. Like, it's, it's a hard spot to be. And it makes our profession sound a little bit like... It sounds like we suck. But because of that, it's easy to understand the path some have taken in terms of influencer. Because you're like, there's way more upside, right? Be associated with working with athletes for short periods of time and then give out like good information. Like some give out bad, but most of them try to give out good information. But you don't have that um, relationship. You don't have that like, hey, we're a small cog and I kind of want to drill into your time at Jackson's, but I started to realize real quick, my job as a strength coach is for this MMA athlete or this combat athlete is to give them the best opportunity to acquire skill. Once you can go acquire skill, man, you're going to crush it because the best performance enhancement for anyone is a very, very good fight team. If you've got a very capable head coach and skill coaches, they're going to get you through the vast majority of stuff in training. So when you go to fight, you've been through it all before. So then I have to understand my role. Then I have to understand, too, the athlete comes in, they tell you everything. Well, my jiu-jitsu coach is doing this, my striking coach is doing that, my wrestling coach is doing this, my head coach is doing that. And you're like, oh, there's clearly a a feedback loop issue here. And it's all alphas. 
uh, a striking coach, striking is the be all and end all, right? Just uh, not everywhere, but most of the time. Yeah. And you're like, okay. And then you listen to everyone and like the striking coach, not talking to the jiu-jitsu coach. And then the athletes burnt out. Then they come to us in the gym. Like we can't do anything. We can just pull some light sleds. We will just let you talk because we're, that CNS is just dropped. Um, so this brings me back to my question is your time at Jackson's. Now from the outside looking in, it seems that they have a system and it's a pretty good system because it's, I mean, dished out some absolutely phenomenal fighters come in and out of there. What was it like to work within that environment and with those coaches? I was surprised with a lot of, of Jackson Wink. Cause it, I think there's a, an arc that people go through where in the beginning, things are very basic. As an intermediate, things seem very complicated. And as, it, as you get more advanced, things become very basic again. They almost run like a very typical MMA academy where it's okay. These are the jiu-jitsu classes we have. These are the wrestling classes we have. These are the striking classes we have with these coaches. They happen at these times. Come to your classes. And from relatively, uh, relatively unknown amateurs all the way up to high-level pros, they're basically operating the same way kids would at an MMA school two blocks from here. Yeah, I show up to my wrestling class. I show up to my this class. And it, it reminds me very much of that arc. Like, oh, like after you're into advanced, things actually become much more foundational again. Yeah. And that was interesting to me. The coaches were very interesting to me. But those coaches, I think the advantage, they all fly under the same banner. If I'm a striking coach, I believe striking is the thing. That's why I'm a striking coach. If I believe wrestling's the thing, I'll be a wrestling coach. So they have their individual preferences or beliefs, but they're all on that team. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a lot of MMA camps are, are pulled in with coaches that have their own brand. They are their own person. I want to be the one that makes a difference here. Not our team has mm-hmm. to make a difference here. So that I think is one of the biggest things they have going for them. And then no different to Westside. When you start getting a lot of people who are doing really huge things around each other, a rising tide raises all boats. I saw the same thing when I was at On It last week. I've seen the same thing here. I've seen the same thing at Jackson Wink. If you get people who are all pushing the limit and all of you are doing that, it brings everybody up and everybody pushes each other forward, which I think is the other major advantage. The coaches, obviously incredible, but there's incredible coaches. You could piece together striking coaches that are about as good. You could find a wrestling coach that's about as good, but you bring them all together and put them on a team under the same banner. And now you have a synergy that's very hard to replicate. That I think is one of the, the most important things. Cause when I've worked with MMA fighters, especially because of all the different, all the different modalities that they're training with, the thing that I found to your problem that you pointed out is typically when I realized Dragon coach is doing this, the wrestling coach is doing this, blah, 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 blah. This isn't working. I'll normally connect with all of them and go, guys, listen, we got to have a meeting. I'm worried I'm messing up the recovery schedule. I'm hoping we can all sit down and you guys can just break down for me what you're doing so I can work around it. And then I make them hear each other. Like I, I only accept meeting with them yeah. all at once so I can write it all out. be like, listen, I'll hit you guys with all this afterwards just so you know what I'm taking from it. I just need an hour of your time so I can improve. It's how I've always approached that. Yeah. But at a gym like Jackson Wink, 
they're all on a team. They're all operating under the same schedule. They know when the other training times are. So it circumvents a lot of that problem. A good head coach, too, is basically like the king of logistics and basically HR personalities. Like I, I chat a lot with and have huge respect for Marcus Marnelli of Strong Style. And to see a head coach do what they do, it's not just the, the level of um, skill they bring and they understand breaking down fights and assessing and game plans. It's making sure all the little stuff goes ahead. And that's really like, oh, that's what a good head strength coach, or sorry, a good head coach does. They understand, they talk with everyone. And they're like, hey, because it's under the same banner is a very good point. Once you're under that same roof, it's, it's for the betterment of this gym, right? You might be one very popular fighter, but what you're doing is raising the level of awareness for the gym you represent. And then that brings in the whole team aspect. This is a huge team aspect within uh, MMA, within camps, because when you've got multiple fighters, you've got a lot of personalities. Just like a family, you've got people who hate each other, dislike each other, back and forth. But it all adds into that, that soup of the atmosphere that's in there. Agreed. And I think the idea of having a head coach who is overseeing everything I think it's the absolute right idea. You just have to have the right coach to do that because you can't be a guy with a big ego. Yeah. Like if, it's, if I walk into a factory that makes cars, well, I do the wheels, I do the bumper, I do the this. And then there's a guy running the whole factory who doesn't seem to do a lot. He knows what everybody else is doing. He knows when yeah. they're doing it. He knows how they're doing it. He's making sure it's all cohesive. But what is he good at? Walking around and looking at people, having meetings every once in a while? Like that guy doesn't seem very impressive. But without that, you, you can't facilitate the smooth operation. It just requires a minimal ego. What emphasis do they have on strength and conditioning down there? Ironically, most of that was left, at least when I was there, most people were left to their own devices for doing that, um, which I think is a really big mistake. I try to explain to people. I try to explain to people often, especially people within the combat sports community, that even if you don't think it's important in terms of increasing their performance, mm -hmm. leaving it as this random variable for them to do whatever they want with whoever they want, wherever they want, is a potential risk. Even if we're saying, look, good strength and conditioning isn't going to make them better. Cool. Would terrible strength and conditioning make them worse? And if the answer to that is yes, it's important anyway. Yeah. It's at least important that it's not horrible. This guy's missed three weeks of jujitsu because he blew his back out doing some ridiculous deadlift he saw on YouTube. Or this person can't recover from a goddamn thing because every time they're not here, they're running and they're convinced they have to do 1,500 push-ups a day. Like, you get, you get both sides of those. Yeah. Even if you don't believe it's important, like, as a benefit, if you recognize that it being terrible would be terrible for the result, it's now important anyway. Yeah. And that's very hard for people to put together. Like, If you look at the organization, if it wasn't that important, and if there wasn't important data to give, why in the heck would the UFC invest so much into the performance institutes? Like, to where, if you're willing to outsource to go to that, like, great resource to have. But from, from my perspective, if I had a team, I'm like, oh, we want to keep everything in-house. I, I, don't, I don't want anyone like cross training over there to where, because if we can look at strength data and go, Hey coach, I think there's something really interesting here. Like 
they can run, they can do all this, but they can deadlift like 225. And you're like, oh, that means like they're not, their endurance is not going to be as good as you think. Like there's, there's data there to where it's very interesting. But even given that, looking at what the professional organizations are doing, why are they putting that in? And if they're doing it, probably you should be doing it yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and I mean, God, strength coaches have been hammering on this for 30 years, 40 yeah. years publicly. I mean, like, this actually helps. But even if people can't get to that, the biggest thing I always tell them is, cool, it can't help. But if they really screw it up, are you in trouble? And if, if we can just get to there, then it matters that it's at least not bad. Yeah. And if we can get to, okay, not bad, maybe we can figure out good. Yeah. But even with that, the idea, the idea that those things like, hey, this guy can only deadlift 225. I've had professional fighters, top 10 ranked fighters come in who couldn't do 10 chin-ups. And I had a 67-year-old female client. Her name is Trudy. She is one of my all-time favorite clients. At 67, hit 17 full bodyweight pull-ups. Awesome. And every time one of these fighters would come in, I'd be like, that's not bad. Like, I've got someone who literally could be your mom uh, who can do 17, but if you're cool with that, I'm like, what? And like, embarrass them into getting better. But I don't know. There's almost certain points where people, people don't care about the strength and conditioning. They don't want to push it. And part of me just wanna like, whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> well, get beat up. Yeah. <laughs> get beat up. Like there's, when you get to the top of the mountain, it's a very hard place to be because everyone's chasing after you. So you have to be self-motivated and you're chipping away at really small increments of success. Um, so going back to the analogy of like, hey, to obtain more skill, well, to obtain skill, you have to be in shape. You have to be injury free. You have to have strength endurance. You have to have strength because if you're just say you're 200 pounds and you're going up. So if you fight at 205, you're probably 225. So you're going, you have to be able to manhandle that strength over and over and over again. And the more skill you do means the more time you're in the gym means that you got to pay attention to recovery. Why does absolute strength matter? Well, if you look at um, a Canadian sprinter, oh, brain's gone dead. Charlie Francis trained him. Uh, ben Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. Why did Ben Johnson have a 405 bench press? Because he's not bench pressing in a sprint, but he had to hold that position over and over. So give him enough strength to practice his skill. Um, to me, this has kind of been this little icebreaker going through with, with coaches. Because like you, I'm like, some see it, some don't see it. Some fighters are of the old school merit. Like they're like, I'll just go beat the person up. Like, cool, get it. Yeah. Um, I was lucky that Matt Brown is my first introduction to this. And Matt, very smart guy. So, but you had to show him why. And then you'd have a back and forth and you'd end up in the right answer, whether you want to or not. Um, so between Matt and Louis and then Dory and all these people coming in, we got a pretty good process coming in. Then we went outside and we had people doing, like, we're doing the conjugate method for fighters. Like, cool, show me what you're doing. And I'm like, I don't know what you're, we went to a gym and they just put bands on everything. Like, this is conjugate. I'm like, that's just band training. You're like, okay. Um, but it's, it's trying to, to chip away at the, at the athlete and the head coach. When the head coach can understand, like, we're, we're a small part of this whole machine, but even the biggest engines, they have no oil. They're going to, like, 
That's like, exactly what I was thinking of. And um, this is uh, this is where we're at, and it's so new. MMA is like professional MMA and professional MMA training is still evolving, and it's becoming more. You get more and more leagues coming up, so training has to step with it. And I know people have to have their angle and their angle of interpretation of strength training, but you're really not going to do a good job if you can't teach the athlete enough common sense of like you're overtraining or you have to communicate or here's a feedback loop. And most of the time, it's not the strength and conditioning. It's the lack of communication. And if we can push that, I think that's kind of like our next iteration of strength coaches working with these athletes. Like, hey, we're going to try and make you understand what's happening and kind of fill in these little gaps. Well, I think the, I agree with all of that. And I actually think it's very interesting. I think professional MMA is older than professional MMA training. Like, even if you go back to like the Rich Franklin days, it's like, oh, okay, he's doing jujitsu in his backyard with some yeah. guys where he's got a DVD and he goes to box at a boxing gym yeah. and he goes to Muay Thai at a Muay Thai place. And then he goes to like professional MMA training. It's still very new. But conjugate, I think, when it comes to, MMA and, and combat athletes in general, but MMA especially, I think the biggest selling point I've ever found on conjugate is I would, with a, with an, with a combat athlete, I would test them on a variety of lifts and we go, we're not going to touch these again for eight weeks and come back in eight weeks. And they'd hit these massive PRs on these movements. And I would always use that. I'd highlight that during the first training cycle I ever had with a combat athlete. And I go, listen, when you came in here, I told you I wasn't going to make you a weightlifter. Your two-board bench hasn't gone up 50 pounds over the last eight weeks because you've gotten really good at two-board benching. Or like I would use, typically I'd pick an upper body movement and a lower body movement. Lower body, I love to do stuff like tire flip for distance on a heavy tire. Mm -hmm. Like it would take them two or three minutes usually to complete it. They come back in eight weeks with no skill work on that movement. No, no ability to build proficiency. And they'd be down at 30 or 40 seconds. And I'd show them the times and be like, this, this is why this matters for fighting. Like it's, because they have this idea, this old school idea, well, I'm just going to do bicep curls. So my arms will get bigger, but they're just bigger because of curls. They're not going to hit harder. Yeah. I'm not going to be stronger. I'm yeah. just going to be better at weightlifting. Because they've had weightlifters come into the gym and they've beaten the hell out of them. You get a Muay Thai guy who's 20 pounds lighter than some bodybuilder coming in off the street, who puts him in a clinch and throws him around the ring. He's like, this guy isn't strong. He just looks strong. He's just good at, li at lifting weights. Mm -hmm. The conjugate methodology, if you can get somebody to test it, is the, the most perfect workaround I've found for getting coaches or athletes to understand it. You sit down with a head coach, and you go, he hasn't done this. He did this eight weeks ago, and he did it today. He hasn't done it any other time. This is what happened with his performance. There you go especially if it's something a little bit unconventional yeah. where they can see an expression of athleticism. Oh. Well, how'd that happen? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. But I think that's, that's one of our, the doors we can push open to explore that a little bit more because even old school guys get sold on that. Yeah. Imagine showing them a video. Here's your guy struggling to flip a 550 pound tire for a hundred yards. Here's him sprinting through it. He didn't touch it in between. He's no better at flipping a tire from a skill perspective. 
What do you think? Yeah. Like that's, that's hard to deny. Yeah. Um, to have an understanding of the history makes it easier to explain stuff simpler in that our knowledge of the conjugate method doesn't start at 2011, 2012. And that, like you said, you went back through the references. You go back to actually, well, Louis talked about the Soviets. He talked about the Bulgarians. What books did he reference? And then you go through that. I'm sure talking to Josh Bryant, he gave you a list of books that he, like, so all these coaches you talk to, like, well, there's probably something in all these books that they've read. And I'm similar to you. I'm like, this coach, this coach, they've all read this one book. I'm like, well, that's a common link. What are they getting out of that? And then watching their interpretation of that book and seeing like, like it's like, it's like uh, you're a detective. Like, I've just found these nuggets of information. And it's hard to explain that to someone who hasn't done the same journey because they can't, it's like getting a, I don't know, we're coming up with crazy analogies today, but it's like um, getting like a, an, like you're distilling this alcoholic and you're drinking it like this tastes good. I'm like, well, I know how it's made. Like, well, I don't care. I just want to drink. You're like, well, no, this is so important as we get older and try to educate people more that we understand the history. We understand the mishaps that went, uh, like the, the period of time that Westside went through maximal, where everyone found the absolute max level of intensity you need to give. So we're like, oh, this is phenomenal. High burnout rate, high injury rate. Then Mel Siff came in, then you had the optimal period and like, oh, boom. And then we got to learn from the guy who went through this whole process and the book of methods. If you've ever met Louis, the book of methods is wrote how he thinks and talks. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's genuine. yeah, it's how it's absolutely all. It's like thought here, thought here, put this in. Then you get a period of clarity and then you're like, this probably should be on this page. When I read it the first time before coming, yeah. I read it. I'm like, something went wrong. Like with the format, like I, I don't know when I downloaded it or something happened. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know how this works. And then I got home and read it again after being around Louis for a week. I'm like, oh no, he wrote this book. Oh yeah. He wrote it. Yeah. Like <laughs> this is for real. Uh, like every one of Lou's books, like from that to the Iron Samurai, the Conjugate Method book is probably the one that has the most structure we put in. Um, but the book of methods, it's unashamedly, that's Louis. That's how Louis talks, thinks. Page one could be on page 50, page 50 should be on page 30. But all the information is in there and it's your own little quest. Like it's, I guess, the strength and condition version. Like it's a it's a, a trek into the Amazon of language. Like, oh, but how do we get it? That's what it is. There was a there was an expression I used to hear all the time when I was in the military. The map is not the terrain. I think so many things about our modern culture have convinced us that we just need to Google or be given or be told or TikTok or whatever the right answer. But that's not it. You just said it. It's your own quest. That's what it is. Yeah. There are a million gems here. Go find them. Because even if I could tell you exactly where they are, they wouldn't be as valuable because you wouldn't develop into the person who could find the next one if you didn't have to find the first one the hard way. Like it's the development you go through having to learn and experiment and think and struggle. Those are the things that prepare you to struggle for a bigger thing later. 
it cannot just be given. Like, and that's, it, that's even if I pretend that people would completely understand it and would completely understand the implementation and if it could be handed to them. Yeah. Even if I give that, that up, it still won't evolve you to be able to do it further. It has to be your quest. That is, that is, that is something I wish more people could embrace in a society that very much is, okay, yeah, yeah, what's the answer? Yeah. Like, no, let's talk about the history. Let's understand the development. Because even, like you were saying, with the period of massive intensity and then looking at different burnout rates with different programs, you go, huh. So when people go, well, why don't we just try this? If you know the history, if you know why the method evolved, you go, this, maybe that's another thing I should have mentioned earlier. When I listen to people talk about conjugate and they're like, I think I'm going to modify it this way. This is my version of doing it. Part of it is like, you're so far behind, you think you're ahead. That's how far behind you are. You're 20 years behind. That was attempted 20 years ago and it didn't work. You're, yep. But you're, you're so far back in the race, you think you're winning. And that's where the history and the education and the mentorship and the, the experimentation, the understanding mm-hmm. is so paramount. Because some people are so misguided they actually think they're visionaries. And it's, they believe like they're right and they're not doing it under false pretenses, even though it's inaccurate. Going back down to they've asked the wrong questions, got the right answers. Yeah. On quests, what's next for you? What are you up to? What, uh, what, uh, what is next in the life of the coach of Craig? So I recently came back from a visit uh, to Texas. Um, It was quite a trip to get here for this today. Um, And while I was there, um, I've been training at Onnit, which is a phenomenal gym. I did a presentation for them about um, some of my training philosophies, including conjugate while I was there. And one of the first things I said to them is like, you guys are conjugate. Like you don't, you might not know it or identify yourselves that way, but the very nature of your programming and your goals is conjugate it's inescapable yep. um, which i thought was very cool so what is the on it is, is it a gym is it a facility is it where athletes come what is so it is a facility um they're currently doing some phenomenal res- renovations to open it up even more um but the equipment is dynamite i got a ton of a ton of equipment reverse hypers uh inverse curls a bunch of west side bars yeah. which i i thought was wild when i was there um and it's essentially a an open gym where they have group training programs, they have seminars. It's the most interesting thing about it is they, the on it mantra is total human optimization. And they really, really mean it. Like when I was there, like they're about that for every, what is the best possible training we can do to create the fittest, healthiest, strongest, most muscular people we can? What do we need to experiment with? What things do we try? And they'll try anything. Mm-hmm. They'll bring in new things. They keep what they like. They discard what doesn't work? They've got a. Do you know what a squatty potty is? The 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 stand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they've got one of those in the bathroom. Like, and I remember walking in and seeing it. I'm like, they really do want to optimize everything. Like, they'll try anything to improve the health and the fitness and the strength of their members. And the community there is second to none. Like, phenomenal people. Is it open to the public? Is it private? Yeah, you can op- you can get a pri- your, wow. an open membership and just come train. It was amazing. So that's what I did. And uh, they ended up offering me a position as essentially the strength and powerlifting coach. Oh, that's awesome. At the gym. Yeah. Congrats. I, thank you. So I, I couldn't. 
Yeah. I couldn't say no. So the, the general manager met with me and he's, you know, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? I'm like, I accept. I'm, <laughs> I have no, I have nothing that I want to renegotiate with. I, yeah. yes. Um, but even that I had, a, like I said, a long drive coming here and reflecting on the first time I was here when we're both broke yeah. and really excited about Steak and Shake because we have no money and don't know what the hell is going on. I was genuinely pissed. No one told me. And this guy from Canada comes down and goes, hey, there's meals here for four bucks. Uh, I was like, well, I didn't even know about uh, Kroger had discount card. Like, I'm just still trying to figure all this out. I know this guy who had a, I remember you had a big ass tattoo in your back. Yeah. And uh, the two things that stood out was Steak and Shake and one when you used the reverse hyper. You said, it's like someone got a pliers and was pulling my spine. I'm like, that's a pretty good uh, analogy. That's how it felt. <laughs> yeah. But back, back from that day, like, I'm completely new. You're relatively new. To, to now I'm coming back here after this opportunity with it that I, and my wife will, she'll strangle me if I don't take some credit for it. Like, I've, I've worked hard. I've tried yeah. to make myself the best coach I could be. But the, the foundation that Louis set for me, and I, I mean that philosophically, educationally, personally, like it, it set me on a path that I believe has allowed this to happen. Even if I've walked it, he, he set me on a path that allowed some of these amazing things to happen. So we start, you know, trying to buy $4 meals at Steak and Shake. Yeah. So I'm circling back from this opportunity at, at On It to sit here and have this conversation with you today here it's an it's almost hard hard for me to believe if i'm honest uh, like that year for all of us was very pivotal right it was when we first got here everyone met and like i have pretty good interaction with everyone who came through still to this day but to see where people ended up to where it's like anything that has consequence there's enough room to have huge success to make whatever or to jump off that cliff and it's up to you and the magic of louis was you have to figure it out here it is like you have to ask the questions you have to dissect the information then you have to go pave your own way which is the most important aspect of this he didn't want replicas of him which is super interesting like because i think that's what most people Want Louis reminds me very much of Custom Auto with Tyson, like the the very wise coach who is who is sharing selflessly and setting a stage. But like Custom Auto said, like fire can cook your food, fire can burn your house down. It's going to be up to you. He'll show you how to make a fire. Yeah, but then it's up to you. But I I feel like with Louis, that's really incredible to me because when I would call him, when I'd be working with athletes, not only would he always have the time and energy to answer my question to communicate with me, but it was never, it was never just do it exactly the way I wrote about in this book. And I, because I respected his time, I would come to those hyper prepared. Okay. I've been doing this because this was my thought process. This is what I'm seeing, but this is what I'm now wondering. And it was never just a do what I say. It was always an exploration of that. Mm -hmm. um, it was much more mentor than cloned. Anything you want to finish on? It might be a little cliche, but <laughs> genuinely just a thank you. 
a thank you to you, a thank you to Westside, to Westside the idea, and most of all, to Louie. I, the amount I have received from this for nothing is monumental. And every day I try to do my best to pay that forward. There's a quote I always, I always bring up when people ask me about Louie, and that it's, you received without payment, give without payment. Um, but Westside, Westside has been and continues to be life-shaping to me. I couldn't be more grateful to share some of the stories and the lessons. And I hope that people mine every single aspect of the podcast, every single aspect of the content you guys continue to put out. I hope they come to the seminars when you run them, read the books, and then experiment and learn. And if they can get 5% of what I've gotten out of this, their life will never be the same. I truly look forward to chatting with you again to see what your adventures happen and on it. And hopefully we'll, we'll get to do this and dissect what, um, what journeys are going through down there. And uh, hopefully we can keep our journey of educating people. So I appreciate the time, buddy. My pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to that.